Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Maritime Deluxe. After a little hiatus I took, uh, still trying to plan everything out and how I want to structure this podcast. And obviously with school going on, it's kind of, kind of tough, but you know, I'm, I'm doing my best to get everything out as much as I can. Uh, this week I'm joined by Ben Brown. He is a wheelchair racer from Cambridge, Nova Scotia. Uh, him and I are going to chat a little bit about his training methods, uh, how he got in a wheelchair when he was 18, and a little bit about the Red Wings, because turns out there's another Red Wings fan out there during these times, so take a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Hey! Hey, sorry about that. Yeah, no worries. No worries. How are you? Good, just still adjusting to being in BC. Yeah, yeah. You uh, you were saying that when we were chatting through email there. You're going to BC. Uh, what's going on over there? Uh, warm weather training, because as you know, in the Maritimes, um, it may be spring, but it doesn't seem like it until like either mid, late April. And my first big competition or qualifier for the year is um, in the middle of May in Switzerland. So I need to be outdoors. Normally, I'd be out in Florida, but going to Florida is not uh, an option. Yeah. Driving wise. Yeah. Do you have to quarantine for two weeks? Probably. No. No. The only thing I can't do is access um, Athletics Canada slash uh, Canadian Olympic um, training facilities. And I can't be in contact with the other, like close contact with the um, other athletes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Before we get started, can you just introduce yourself a little bit and who you are, where you're from, and all of that jazz? Can do. Um, all right. Uh, okay. I'm Ben Brown. I am from Cambridge, Nova Scotia, and I compete in the sport of para-athletics. I do the 100 up to the 1500 meter in the T53 category, which means I have full use of my upper body, just minimal use of my trunk and leg muscle and no use of my leg muscles mm-hmm. and i saw before you got into racing you were actually into wheelchair basketball yep i did a little bit of wheelchair basketball i played for four seasons and during that time i tried sledge hockey still raced atvs and then i during that time i was also wheel, like you say wheelchair racing and then um i just made the decision to stick with wheelchair racing since it was the one that suited my personality and the one I seem to enjoy the most. Mm-hmm. And so you actually went to the Canada games for wheelchair basketball before you got into racing. Is that correct? Nope. Uh, no. I went to, I was starting like training for Canada games, wheelchair basketball first, but then um, we had spots for uh, track for track for wheelchair racers for the first time in team Nova Scotia. And I was offered to go. So I, um, did that in 2009 in Charlottetown and then two years late less than two years later did basketball and then little two years later did Shearbrook and then four years later did um Winnipeg where Mm -hmm. I won three silver medals right what got you into wheelchair racing that's a really funny story actually I was um at a specialist appointment in Halifax and I parked my uh truck at the uh, QE2 hot parking lot because where I had to go to the professional center, accessible parking in Roby Street is not happening. 
So I, um, and I wanted to get something to eat, but didn't want to wheel back to my truck and then um, try to find somewhere to eat. So I went to the closest place I could wheel that had a ramp. And that was Starbucks, which is pretty much that ramp is not really accessible. It's like a hill that I would train up now. I was having, at that point, Starbucks wasn't doing sandwiches or anything like that. So I had a brownie and a fr iced frappuccino because again, like no hot chocolate, no English toffees, anything like that. Because I'm a, if I'm going to drink stuff, I'm not, a t I probably consume more Timmy's in the last few years than I have for a long, long time. But if I'm going to get something hot, it's either hot chocolate or French vanilla, but because I'm not a coffee drinker and my, um, I was wearing a wheelchair basketball t-shirt and my coach that I have now that I've been with since then, uh, came up to me and asked me if I knew, um, his prof and I was like, yeah, yeah. And, uh, he asked if I was interested in doing a fitness test for, his, um, practicum. And I was like, yeah, is that one of those tests where you go, go and go until you quit dire puke? And he's like, yes. And I'm like, all right, sign me up. And after back and forth emails, we finally did that in March of 2009 after the test, he's like, you know, you have some potential for wheelchair racing. And I wasn't sure about doing it at first because that's what the diagnosing doctor for my accident suggested I do. And I didn't like being told what to do. And, um, but I gave it a shot in May of 2009. The chair was too small, so I could barely get in. And then I didn't realize that you're not to grab the rings like you would a day chair or a basketball chair. You're to punch the wheels, essentially. And I didn't realize you're not supposed to sit straight up, which I did. Fell flat on my back and well, I fell in love with it right then and there. And a few or about a month later, I did my first track meet in um Oromoncto Gauge Town. And I finally realized that, like, even though I was still racing ATVs with my buddies, I was playing wheelchair basketball, did a little bit of sledge hockey, but I finally found a sport that I I just felt completely like myself as far as like without a ATV again. So I kind of and I did. Canada games that summer, like I say, and our goal was to stay in the lane and that's what we achieved. And I just decided to stick with it slowly as I went on. Mm -hmm. what, what do you mean by when you say like grab the wheels or sorry, grab the ring? I mean, what does that mean? Um, well, when you watch someone push their day chair, like a basketball, tennis, what have you, their hand is almost around the push ring of the chair. Okay. Of the wheel. Whereas a wheel racing chair, you're wearing gloves that are like almost like boxers mitt, or if you're using what we call hard gloves are almost like a prosthetic fist and you're constant to get the, to start the momentum and to maintain the momentum. You're hitting that ring um, with all your force, like a butterfly stroke in swimming. Okay. Interesting. So there's a difference between racing and the way you would play basketball. Oh, hundred percent. I mean that in your position, I mean, there's people that sit like they would in a day chair, but there's very few and far between that can sit like that and go fast. Like you're actually kneeling, you're, you're pretty aerodynamic. Um, that and our, well, I mean, a bas basketball, rugby, tennis, those kind of chairs, they're designed to turn on a dime. Our racing chairs are designed for the road turns to an extent, like no hairpins and 400 meter outdoor tracks. Mm -hmm. okay and you have your steering set up you know to go around the curves of a track you just got to adjust it and then um and how you do that is by hitting the compensator triangle and playing with the adjuster bolts and once you get it dialed you're set and of course you have the handlebar again to let you turn left and right in an emergency on the track and also to turn left and right on the road plus you have your front brake 
which you don't slam on unless it's an absolute necessary because you'll flatten a tire. You uh, feather it like you would a clutch on a um, car or um, ATV, dirt bike, motorcycle. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so you're really into ATVs and stuff and your accident is, that's how it happened, I I read. Um, Can you take me through that day and what that day was like? Well, I did um, like an ops course race with the ATV I crashed on like the night before in Lawrencetown at the Annapolis Valley Exhibition. And I was going to this track in um, Hans County to get prepared to go to Fredericton, potentially like I was looking for a ride to Fredericton because the tr- pickup truck I had at the time, I'd take it as far as Moncton, like Salisbury, Moncton, but I wouldn't go any further because after that, you're really questioning if it's going to get you not so much to where you're going, but is it going to get you home kind of thing. It was, right. I mean, it was an old truck, whatever. Right. And um, I was feeling out the track, second lap in. Um during the first lap, I skipped the jump because I realized like how small it was and how big of a run on. I knew this was going to cause a crash. So the next time I went around, I went into it easy, hit it, just came up short, got thrown over the handlebars. And usually when this happens, when you get bucked off the your machine, your machine doesn't quite usually goes one way and you go the other. Well, this time it followed me and it lawn darted on my back. And then I was in about a state of shock for about two minutes. Then I could feel my neck. So I knew my neck wasn't broken but I could feel my back and I knew my back was broken. I was like, okay, yep. Season's done. And then, uh, you know, the pain really kicked in. I was rolling around trying to alleviate the pain while I'm waiting for, you know, the ambulance to arrive. And, um, half an hour later, I couldn't feel my legs. I went to, um, we got, once the ambulance got there, they took me to Windsor. Um, I still thought I could feel my legs like move them, but that was not the case. Um, they transported me to Halifax cause, um, it was serious. I had to call my dad was already waiting for me, but I had to call my mom and that was kind of the worst part of it. Having to call my mom about that. And then that night after a bunch of tests and being asked a hundred times by war helmet or not, um, cause, and they said, well, people have motocross action all the time. Don't wear helmets. Like, no, I said on a track, you are made to wear your gear. Like you can't enter the track without gear. So, um, they diagnosed me as I was T5. So that's chest down, complete paraplegic. I asked if I was going to ride and race again. And they told me, you know, like I said, go, why don't you try wheelchair racing? And I was like, of course, not comprehending. And I was defiant. So I'll just leave it at that. And that was kind of like, and I was still like, again, you're on a bunch of pain meds. You're not comprehending that you're not going to walk in. And a week after I had my surgery to fuse my spine and everything back together. And I thought that was supposed to fix everything. And of course, that wasn't reality hit. I was in a slight depression for about 24 hours. Diagnosed, the surgeon gave me the information to ride ATVs again. And that pretty much just changed everything and reset the motivation. And then like, um, I realized within three weeks, the walking hundred percent was not going to happen. And I just, all right, this is what's been dealt with me. I'm just going to roll with it and go with it. And um, initially I was supposed to be in rehab for six months. Took me two and a half like after the first week is the first week I complained about all the pain and stuff. And the physio I had said, if you want to get back on your ATV and you want to get back to living your life, you got to, you know, deal with this stuff. So it's kind of how I, once I came with that approach, then, you know, mindset changed. Right. And how old were you when this happened? Uh, Three weeks away from my 19th birthday. So I wasn't doing the stereotypical Canadian uh, 19th birthday celebration. When I turned 19, I was in the rehab, 
having Subway, Taco Bell, eating ice cream cake and watching movies with friends and family versus, you know, going to the bar. So, right. which worked out because I'm an all or nothing kind of guy. And honestly, I did the bar scene, you know, for the first couple of years once I got out of rehab, but then I realized it's not for me. And also I woke up one morning with a wicked hangover and that was kind of, <laughs> I said, nope, that was kind of my convincer that, and I can say like, I barely drank um, maybe once a year. Mm-hmm. As far as going out with my friends last year, I had three beers. Yeah. So I, I've kinda, been there. <laughs> so, I mean, that's kind of the thing is, I guess when I find, I find when I learn, have life lessons that hit me hard, I tend to learn pretty quickly that if I don't like it, don't do it again. Right. I can't imagine having to call your mother after an accident like that and tell her what's going on. What? What was her reaction when she got that phone call? Um, she was upset, but I mean, she was just, you know, it was more like, I can't quite remember. I remember a lot of details, but again, like it's been, so, it's been over 14 and a half years. I replay the game day, but it's just like, I'd have to think about it. But I mean, like, um, you know, my mom, like that's, it, it was very, uh, for my family, it was, you know, what got my family through it was my attitude of how I accepted it, right? Like, and just saying, no, I'm not going to let things slow me down. And that's kind of how I, you know, I just, that's how I am. I'm very, I'm very, um, I'm willing to work with people and I'm willing, I'm very easygoing. But when it comes to certain things, I can be very stubborn, which is a good thing to have as an athlete mentality. Because if you're not willing to stand up for yourself, you're not going to get anywhere. It's like in your career. So, mm-hmm. right. And you said after you went into, a little depression because of everything that had happened and, and the pain you were feeling, how long did it take for you to be able to, I know you said, eventually you said that you were going to roll with it. This was your life, but how long did it take for you to get to that point? Uh, from the time I got, ha- got, had the crash happen until that moment, I'd say about three weeks. Cause when I realized I was in rehab and I saw people have it harder than me, I was like, you know what? This is not so bad. I got my hand, full use of my hands and arms. I know what's going on. Um, yeah, I don't have the best balance. Yeah, I can't walk, but you know, at least I can do things with my friends. I can go to work. I can go. Tr- I can play sports because I wasn't thinking Paralympics at that point. I just wanted to, you know, get back to sports. And I said I'll eventually be able to ride an ATV and race it. And that was kind of one of the things. That was one of the motivating factors. Like uh, there was people saying, "Oh, you'll never. Oh, you'll be able to ride one, but you'll never be able to race one again." And I kind of like. I said, no, watch me. And that's kind of how I've also approached life. This is like, if someone tells me I'm not capable of doing something, I'll figure out a way to make it work. And that's also, I've had that kind of approach to my uh, training. Like if um, I'm not going to deny as far as an athlete goes, before I got injured, I played hockey like most Canadian kids, but I'm flat footed. So skating was not my uh, skill set. And I mean, if you can't really skate that well, uh, hockey is not, you know, <laughs> going to the, uh, going to the show is not going to happen. That's just, let alone making it past house league. So, um, and softball, I, I could catch and throw, but I couldn't throw that far. I could run decently, but of course, as I got older and my priorities changed and my diet went to like a stereotypical teenager, you know, eating rotten Ronnie's and Wendy's and whatnot. So I got a little slow and cause if you eat like crap, you're going to perform like crap. It's a very, I ha- live by that saying, um, that again, like I just wasn't super skilled. I could, and then um, 
once I realized I got to outwork everybody that I compete with, that's kind of what's helped me with my training. And that's, again, it's that son, that's watch me mindset is what's helped me, you know, with life and with, um, training as well. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about your training. Um, obviously it'd be very different from most sports. How is, how is it, how are you able to train for wheelchair racing? That's a very good question. Um, so we do running events, but we train like cyclists, swimmers, and runners combined, almost not like a triathlete, but like, so again, we got the butterfly stroke for me. What works is doing speed first, then doing ramping up the volume as we're ramping up the intensity. I train normally twice a day, six days a week. And on the sixth day, I'll do just one long workout. And on the gym days, I'll typically, unless I'm really close to competition, then I'll train three times a day. Cause I find the gym for the most part doesn't wear me out. It's almost like charges me up for the, the, the third workout. Um, so again, we do the running dis- different distances, but because in wheelchair racing in the 800 meters and up, you can draft. So that's where we train sort of like cyclists. And also because we're on wheels, we can do active recovery. Like our act, we keep moving di- between intervals. If you know, the workouts designed that way. And if the, training route allows so um and because depending on your disability you're only using in my case like a third a quarter to a third of my body is only being used so i can recover twice as quick like so for example if i'm doing um what was it i i was doing um like i'll do like 60 60s like 60 seconds hard 60 seconds easy or i'll do a 60 30 or a 90 30 right because i can do that whereas you wouldn't see someone running go for 90 seconds hard and then only do like a 30 second breather. You wouldn't, you don't see that very often. And then same thing, like last year, I, uh, when the tracks finally opened up to in Nova Scotia to use, um, instead of going on the road that day to do 60 thirties, I did four, I broke up, did it in two sets of five, um, 400, 200s. And people were watching me do it and they're just like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I said, well, I'm on wheels. It's a little bit different. Um, that, and again, we can put on way more mileage too, right? So my average workout, not this week so much because I'm trying to find the right route and everything. And definitely the routes in BC are a little, a little more challenging than what they are in Nova Scotia, where I train in the Annapolis Valley of Nova Scotia. But normally I would like, when I tell people I got to go do a half marathon, mind you, I've been, that's become my norm for the last three or four years. Whereas a challenging long workout is about 30 kilometers or more. And I'll put in between 30 to 40 kilometers a day. That's quite expected when you start focusing on the 400 and up. And even when I was doing primarily the 100, I was still putting in 120K a week. Has your tra- training schedule changed at all within the past year? Obviously, with the pandemic happening and everything, how has that affected your day-to-day life? Uh, well... It, as far as the training goes, I got very lucky because with my sport, all I had to do other than the isolation when I came home from Alabama was um, set up a roller at a friend's and train there for two and a half weeks till that wasn't until the weather was nice. And then I moved that roller to a shed, friend's shed, and because that's our version of a treadmill. And because there was rollers, same like a hands, like a cyclist that has an indoor trainer, our train, my training never got affected. The only difference was once we knew season was not likely going to happen. We changed our focus. So instead of like in April, we like late Mar- March and April, we or late March and April, 
we start rant, like getting ready for season. This time we switched to complete fitness endurance. And so I put in like an extra 2000 kilometers for the year almost. And um, I did get one track meet in by myself. Um, the As far as weight room was concerned, um, I already had a small setup already. Like when I get, got home from I, during isolation, but I probably spent about $500 on trial and error stuff because I bought three chin up bars and the first two, you had to drill holes in your door frames, oh, which when right. you rent an apartment, can't do. Right. But ironically, someone came up with, I don't think I ever saw this until the pandemic started was um, you just literally, it has like um, rubber ends that grip to your paint door frame. Mm-hmm. And that kind of chin up bar grabbed, got TRX bands, medicine ball. My coach gave me a bar to, that had the rates, weights rusted on. Ironically, it was only 65 pounds, but for a bit, that's what I did for um, floor press, skull crushers. And I would just do all sorts of stuff. And I would, you know, during isolation, I probably out of the 14 days, I did a lot, 10 to 11 lifting weights for an hour, an hour and a half, at least just to, you know, stay fit. And then mm-hmm. again, still strength trained. Once I was able to get on the track, you know, I started using the track. And once gyms were open, I started using the gym. And the only time I had, I only had to use my um, home gym a handful of times. Um, as far as like affecting my life, yes, I couldn't really compete, which is a huge part of my life. But I'm used to coming, going training and going home anyways, like other than getting groceries and stuff. And realistically, I'm not going to lie. When it comes to uh, getting groceries, I know we were recommended only go to the grocery store like once every week or once every two or twice a week at the most. But um, as far as meat concerned, yeah, you can put it in the freezer and it'll stay. But for produce, I go through a lot of veggies and fruits as an athlete. I had to go to the grocery store like every minimum two to three days because again, I'm consuming that many vegetables because I wanted to keep, you know, avoid them spoiling and that kind of thing. Right. Um, I mean, as the restrictions got loosened in Nova Scotia, I, you know, started living more and more in my life. I was able to fundraise, do pull off two big fundraisers um, that actually went very well considering the pandemic. Um, I mean, again, it just, and then once, we got looser with restrictions then yeah, I got more social, but I mean, again, it's my life is pretty much get up, breakfast, shower, get ready for the day, go train, eat, recover, go train again, come home, eat, recover and watch TV and, or a movie and call tonight. That's pretty much my day. Right. So, I mean, mm-hmm. the pandemic didn't really affect me too much as that is concerned. Cause I mean, in the, you know, the trend of staycation, I was doing that ever since I started competing because I can't afford when I'm on a two week shutdown break. Um, I don't have money to go to another province or another destination. It's pretty much just stay home, hang with friends, eat whatever I want for almost two weeks within reason, and then get back to training. Mm-hmm. What were those two fundraisers you, you said? Uh, one was my annual golf tournament. And that was the, actually the most successful golf tournament. Part of the reason I think is because no one really got to play golf tournaments. So I got more teams than I usually do. And then I had just right before the, um, I left here for BC, I had a fundraising dinner. The difference was instead of person or in person, it was takeout and my auction was on Facebook. So, and that did well. Plus, I mean, I was able to pick up a few more sponsors. Um, again, I'm lit. And I mean, I finally flew, like I say, for the first time in a year. So that was definitely different. Um, having the flights weren't long, like super long. It was just the fact that I had to wear a mask for the whole flight other than having a snack. And that was kind of, you know, that made the flights 
like a two, like normally it's two, two and a half hours to Toronto. It just made it seem like another 15, 20 minutes because of the wearing the mask. Mm-hmm. And the same thing like Toronto to Vancouver again. But mind you, Vancouver to Victoria was like shorter, was like me going to, uh, I think it was quicker than going to my coach's house to hit the roller. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So that was the kind of the short part. But I mean, like, again, those were kind of the thing. Again, it's just, um, I'm, I'm really happy with the community support I'm still having despite the pandemic. And I mean, we're going to still have a Paralympics. It's just going to be modified. Competitions are, like I said, I have Switzerland in the middle of May and we'll have some qualifiers here in Canada. I mean, I have a twilight, a small qualifier, or qualifier here and next, not this Saturday, but next Saturday coming. I'm not looking to hit my standards necessarily, but just get some good times. Finally get a competition in with some people and just see what I need to work on going into Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, last year, obviously, the Paralympics were obviously canceled in Tokyo. Uh, what was your in- initial reaction when that happened? Uh, okay, so um, here's the thing. Like, I was supposed to go to Dubai when this all started, but it got canceled because of the pandemic. But it was still safe to go to the States. And I was going to go to Alabama at the end of March. So I just went three weeks earlier. And a week and a half later, I had to go home. And on the way to the airport, I get an email telling me that um, – Switzerland's canceled. So it's like, oh, great. And I knew Quebec. And also I knew nationals wasn't happening because a day, the day prior, the whole province of Quebec was shut down for sporting events until the end of June, until further notice. Mm-hmm. So like, okay, I literally have no qualifiers. Are we going to have a games? And so I would, I got home Thursday night and then on Sunday night, while I was like, you know, watching Netflix or playing video, whatever I was doing, um, I get an email letting us know that at, the governor Canada has pulled or is pulled out and two days and I, it was frustrating, but I understood why I was all behind it. And two days later, when I saw the Olympics Paralympics was going to be postponed from the pressure from us and Australia and a few other countries. Then I, re, when I saw that it was more of a sigh of relief because I didn't want to, I was, I'm very close to making the games and I didn't want to like miss out on my opportunity just because of, um, you know, just because of that. So Again, it was a, instead of being upset, I just saw it as another year to build. And honestly, it really worked out. My overall endurance is better. My fitness, my power endurance, um, my technique. This sport is very technical. It takes, it's rare that someone hops in a race chair and takes off like you can in running typically. Mm-hmm. Like you have, it, especially with the higher gloves, you have to be very precise in your stroke. One miss, one miss stroke and that could be a race or an injury. Right. Do you have any good stories from your travels? Obviously, you've been a good place, some good places around the world. You said Alabama, and uh, I read you went to South America. I think it was. Uh, whereabouts was that? Uh, Lima, Peru for Parapan Ams. But speaking of stories, I got one from last night. Okay. This one's good. So the thing about the Victoria Trail system is everything uh, connects. And the problem is I'm finding the signage is not the greatest to tell you when you change trails until you're about three to five kilometers in. And my friend that I'm going to be training with next week, once I, I'm after my, over my six day period, um, he told me where to go and I did. And he said, there is a straight stretch there. And this is probably the only straight stretch. And I was doing my warm. I was like, okay, I'll turn around at some point. And I thought, okay, there's going to be another straight stretch. And I, so I turned around once I gave up on the idea of doing intervals and I missed the turn off, didn't realize it went back to where I, I initially started on Tuesday's workout, turn around and I 
saw this guy, a friend, now a new friend, Jeffrey, um, Steven, he, uh, him and his friends uh, just finished their run because I passed him earlier. And, he, I, and I turned around, went in his driveway and asked him to give me a hand. And he hopped on his bike and we realized, okay, he took me back to where I did my first turnaround. And we decided, he said, okay, I'll go get my truck. Just wait here. So I went to the Tim Hortons parking lot and waited. And because there's like four or five Frifties, which is like BC's version of Sobeys. Mm-hmm. Um, we kept guessing and guessing and guessing and guessing. Had to go back to his house, get a jerry can of fuel for his truck. Because of course, I didn't have my cell, I don't take my cell phone with me because uh, there's nowhere to put it. And uh, we finally found it la- late last night, around 10 o'clock last night, the car, like where okay. I started. So, yeah, that was, uh, and uh, it was a late night last night because I try to get to sleep now between 10 and 11. And I didn't get to bed till probably after 1230 or so because mm-hmm. I didn't eat, but I bought grocery, some groceries. So I had those. And I was going to get for my meat portion protein intake. I was going to go to the restaurant here, but the restaurant's closed. And I go on a DoorDash, and there's only three choices at this time of night: McDonald's, 7-Eleven, and this food truck. And I'm like, well, I'm going to go with the food truck. And had a, I think it was like a, a pastrami uh, panini. So out of all, because it was all, you know, again, it was either hot dogs, pizza, sausages, or guess, or of course, Big Macs. So I went with the pastrami because it was the healthiest of all the yeah. choices. So. That was kind of, that's one funny story. For, it, you had, like, again, and um, also, funny enough, also during that time, we um, took a wrong turn and he pulled out and we got pulled over by the cops and we had to talk to the cop and he didn't have his wallet on him. So, because um, we didn't realize it was going to take us that long. So we both had, a, he had to talk to one cop and I talked to the other and that got us out. And of course, when the cops pulled, pulled us over, I didn't have my mask on me and he did. So when the cop was talking to him, he had to wear his mask. And I just did this with my shirt to the other cop just because, and she didn't mind. And once I explained what's going on, I said, like, I'm from Nova Scotia. I just got in Monday night. And I said, I'm not going to lie. I don't know the trail system. I'm learning as I go. I mean, that's kind of the good thing is this week is a ba- is basically the learning curve of what routes are going to be productive and which ones aren't for my training. And then next, starting next week, I can have like a full, like the next five weeks will be full quality training. So that's kind of, there was that. Um, Lima. Uh, I get there the first night in the uh, wheelchair accessible showers. Their how their hot water regulator worked was the it was sporadic, and it would go from freezing cold to scalding hot without warning. And I burned my foot, like, and then two days later, or the next day while we were training, or the two days later, whatever it was, leaving the track. The drivers are a little bit erratic, just to put it nicely. And this guy thought it was a bright idea to pull up in front of our bus. And I wasn't in the wheelchair seat because there's no wheelchair like places to park my wheelchair on the bus. And I, he smashed the, um, smashed in this car. I thought it was, and I flew out of my seat and I thought it was just the driver being erratic. Um, and then of course I was aiming for medals. I was predicted to win gold in, like in the 800 meter. And I finished fifth out of five, like out of, you know, instead of winning and that kind of demoralized me, but it was a huge learning experience. So again, it, it was just kind of one of those things like it just, things added up and up and I couldn't seem to get over mentally get over them, but like, it was a good learning curve. Um, see here. I've, um, I've driven to, uh, States total, like to Florida, Georgia total five times. And I say, um, one of the more, um, interesting ones was, I'd say for a good laugh would have been 
uh, landing in Quaker Steak. Um, I went to stopped at Quaker Steak uh, Wing Place in New Jersey. Had wings. Um, tried to change my fries for a salad, but to get the deal, they wouldn't go for it. I went to do the third hottest wings, but someone decided to have the atomic wings where you had to wear gloves and goggles. Oh, yes, yes. And then um, I just I left and I decided to keep going. And I had the coupon book to save money on the hotel. So you didn't have to full, pay full price, right? Mm-hmm. And the closest one on my route home. And um, that was under like reasonable price was this one place in Connecticut. And I kept hitting construction. Finally got there that night. It was $55 American. And Connecticut, I swear, you got to have, you got to be rich to rent a room. Like even with the, the coupon book, you get a hotel that night, you're still paying over $100 American. So I get there for $55 American. The room itself was accessible, but not the bathroom. I had to crawl to get to the bathroom shower. So I had a shower. Lo and behold, pull up the curtain, cockroach. Oh, geez. <laughs> so I said, yep, this is why it's 55 bucks American. Yeah, screw that. <laughs> and then I left Connecticut that morning at eight o'clock and got home 11 o'clock that almost midnight that night. So I did not by plan, just the way it worked out. It took me two and a half days to get home from Warm Springs, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Wow. But normally it should take like three and a half. But again, I did some extra driving that I did not plan to do. Yeah. As far as um, racing stories go, uh, Switzerland we make this, me and my coach make this joke because my coach is from Switzerland. Um, right after I did this, this 1500 was the first time I went under three, three minutes and 30 seconds. And just to give you a reference, you as a runner will smoke me in the hundred up to the 400. But after that, I'm gone. And my world, my personal best is like faster than the running world record, but it's still like 25 seconds beyond the wheel, men's wheelchair record. Mm-hmm. And um, I just finished the 1500. Me and my coach are watching the next heat and going over my race. And we hear boom, boom, like thunder, um, thunder coming out, right? And they're not even can't, not even black flag in the race. And the announcer starts playing thunderstruck, and the race still goes on. I go do my cool down, I come back out, and it is absolutely pouring out. Oh, <laughs> so like everybody else had to go in this downpouring rain while mine in the heat after avoided the rain. But just the fact that the Swiss don't cancel races for, for um for for thunder thunderstorms uh i thought that was quite interesting um what else i'm trying to think of what like what other good like funny racing stories there would be um hmm um well not so much funny but uh i of course the i've made a lot of friends over the years um i did one was uh, one of my friends who's number one in the world in my classification, uh, Brent Lactose. He also became the first Canadian um, since Josh Cassidy, who I'm going to be training with while I'm in BC here, to win the London Marathon in 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, well, Brent got me invited to race um, 100 meter at the London Anniversary Games in 2016, where I was in front of like 30,000 people on live television. That was a really cool feeling. It's probably one of my favorite, favorite race moments just because of uh, the fact that I uh, got, you know, gone live national television in front of 30,000 people. Um, there'd be that. Uh, when I won my first national title, I don't know what I enjoyed more uh, beating the rival. Cause I never beat him prior or winning my first national title. It's still, I always, that's always tough to debate, but I just, the way the race played out, like I just happened to hit everything except for the time I wanted, but that's because again, we're a wheelchair racing track surface makes a huge difference. And 
a lot of times our Paralympic Olympic trials or national championships are on tracks that are not exactly the best for wheelchair racing. So it's not about times. It's more about podium appearances or winning at that point. And that's kind of how you have to track. Sometimes when you have a nag, too strong of a tailwind in the, in a sprint or a crazy headwind or it's raining, it's no longer about the time. Just go and try to win. Hmm. Um, another one would be when I went to go pick up my current race chair at Oyeta, Japan to do a half. I did the marathon. and got fitted the year before I went down to a half marathon, be a little more focused on the track. We got typhooned out, but the first day I was there, um, Ernst Van Dyke, who's won Boston marathon 10 times. We've become friends. I was about to buy them my cappuccino at um, Starbucks and he paid for it. And I said to myself, life's good when the 10 time Boston marathon winner is buying your cappuccino for you. Yeah. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and the thing about Ernst, if you're to look up Ernst on um, YouTube, he makes me look short and skinny. How tall are you? Uh, six one. Okay. But it's mostly in my legs. Whereas Ernst, um, he, um, he doesn't have a spinal cord injury. He's an amputee, so he's only missing part of his leg. Okay. Or legs, I should say. And then um, he's and he's a bit of a muscle baby to, be, to begin with. But, yeah, no, Ernst has been around our sport for qu quite a long time and is a very good ambassador. And also, like I said, he's won Boston Marathon 10 times. Jeez. And has, and has the second fastest um, marathon ever at 78 minutes and – four seconds i think it is mm -hmm. that was set in 2017 during boston because i remember that because i just got home from driving home from warm springs georgia for warm weather training in boston was that day and yeah. it was five degrees to go train outdoors in nova scotia while it was 21 degrees in boston i'm like this is not right how did you meet him um actually it was my first oida because i get i don't really do a lot of road racing like mm -hmm. internationally and that was my first big inter or other than doing Peachtree and Cedartown, that was my first and only marathon. And um, that was the first time I met him. And I was just like in sh shock and awe initially, just because again, he uh, was, he races for team Honda. He, uh, other than winning gold and I think a Paralympic marathon, but definitely hand cycling and winning Boston marathon 10 times, you know, here's a guy who, you know, very well known in the sport and a little starstruck for about five for a couple of minutes, but really nice guy. Um, our network is very small, but we get to know each other. Right. So. Okay. Right. Um, I wanted to ask you about your business. Now I know you're unable to work because of um, you're a full-time athlete and you had started this, this business where you promote athletes. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? Um, well, I'm selling t-shirts. I just, I'm going through a bit of a business loan just to get more inventory. Cause I'm pretty much out of shirts and I'm working on some wheelchair racing parts, but I initially, I do want to get into like promoting more and more athletes. It's just, uh, I need not just so much the time. I just need, you know, the funds to do it. I mean, I'll promote local athletes for free anyways at the moment. Cause we all need to be heard and people need to see us. I mean, hockey is, I mean, the good thing about hockey players is the hockey network is a huge network and if you play well you're seen but like other sports that are not so known like especially in wheelchair racing we're not a super well mainstream sport mm -hmm. so when you go see, when you see on my instagram facebook twitter if i see an opportunity to share something i'll share it blow it up try to you know get people talking about it that's the great and 
again, like I started the shirts last year, ironically, right before the pandemic. And then I sold quite a few during the summer. And I thought I actually ran out of inventory. And when I went to go pack here for BC, I opened the travel case door and voila, there was another 12 shirts or I think it's 12. I sold one. I'll be selling another, at least one or two here while I'm here. And then I'm taking the rest with me to Switzerland. So they're all wheelchair racing shirts. So I think I can sell them while I'm in Switzerland. Okay, cool. And then, like I said, I'm just going through a business loan application. I just got to finish one more thing and hopefully get the, it's a provincial program, hopefully get it. Not, it's not a big loan, but just enough to get things, um, get the ball rolling again. Cause like I said, I want to work on some wheelchair racing parts to help the sport and help myself financially and kind of go from there. Cause I got I, our racing chairs, they've definitely, you know, improved over the last, you know, three decades, but maybe it's just from my ATV racing background and being a car racing fan and stuff. OEM stuff. It's great, but there should be, th there's always ways to make your equipment better, maybe on the durability side or the um, speed side. So I'm working on it. My product is kind of speed and durability on both sides of the coin. Um, I'm hoping to become a dealer for, um, North, a North American rep for another parts company, hopefully. So we'll see how that goes out. Mm -hmm. It's just all a matter of how this loan plays out and what I can do. And, um, again, it's, I mean, it's not just cause I'm a full-time athlete, but I'm just going to leave it out there. When you have a physical disability or something that's visible, it is very hard to get a meaningful employment in general, especially in the maritime provinces. And, um, I realized I wanted to, I needed to start working for myself over like a little less than a decade ago. And I decided to take business at NSCC. Initially, I was going to get into that sports marketing thing. And we did this entrepreneurship project. And that's kind of, that's when it just changed, changed switch of gears, mindset. And I've been working on a few things. So hopefully we can, um, you know, hopefully something can happen. And mm -hmm. I started selling more shirts, start selling racing parts in the next little, in the next year or two. And then grow from there because I also want to sell stuff that's not currently quite on the market because I don't want to. It's not that I don't like competing with other people. It's just I rather, you know, I feel like as a community, we almost should work together, not against each other mm -hmm. for the benefit of the sport. Right. Um, I wanted to ask you something because um, so I heard about you through my friend Nigel Cornelius and uh, he told me you were a Red Wings fan. So I, yeah. I wanted to ask you about a little bit about them because I'm also a Red Wings fan as well. Okay, so I mean, I'm going to be honest. I This is probably the more, because I have cable access now, so I don't have cable at home. This is probably the most I've watched professional sports in the last, I don't know how many years. I do pay attention. It is frustrating, as you know, we're going through a rebuild. I trust what Stevie's doing. Unfortunately, I'm probably on the same bandwagon that most Red Wings fan is. Fire Blaschel. And it's nothing against the guy. He's just not like, and I could be wrong. I mean, as a, and this is coming from an athlete's perspective. Some people, they only can coach at a certain level. He won a Calder Cup. Some guys are AHL coaches or junior, junior A, major, junior, what have you coaches, because that's the level where they succeed the most because that's where they can get their players to buy into what they're doing and their athletes to buy in what they're doing. He can't do, he just can't seem to do that in the, at the NHL level. Mm -hmm. And the other part of it is you can't fire him because certain States like Michigan, they have their COVID protocols for people coming in and out. So if they fire him and hire a new coach, um, that coach has to possibly isolate for a week or two and that puts them further behind. So it's better to wait till the season's over with. And I mean, the other part is 
with this taxi, I don't mind you. I'm only getting notifications for Detroit and the Senators and the Flames. Flames are my Canadian team. And the reason for the Senators is because of Drake Bafferson. But I find the Red Wings out of all those three teams are the one team that constantly sends people back and forth to Grand Rapids or the taxi squad. And it's a shame because you got guys in, that are sitting in the A that have actually performed better than some of the guys who are my age or slightly older. And I mean, mind you, wheelchair sports a little bit different age-wise, but they're on their last leg of their career. So I understand you're paying them. You got to get them on the ice, but they're not performing. Mm-hmm. And the guys that are being sent down to the A are – are performing when they get their shot and but hey we snapped uh carolina's winning streak so that's a good sign and larkin's starting to come back the way he is yep. hopefully Berkeley will be back in the lineup mantha i'm unsure he of mantha needs, he's just not performing like he's motivated but he's just still not that like he doesn't seem to have that fire i don't know if it's because bertuzzi's not on the ice or if blashill's not like or you figure stevie would hold him accountable but who knows i mean like i said it's just <clears throat> I did see like a trade rumor about who we could trade at the deadline. And the only still, I think the only reason why we got Mark Stahl initially was to get some draft picks come trade deadline. Yeah. Cause I know Bobby Ryan, he's performing and he wants to stay here. Gagne's again, I think he could stay. It's just hard to say because he did perform very well at the start. He, and he's dove himself right into the city of the, of the community efforts and stuff. Do you really want to get rid of a locker room? Pre- Cause some guys it's like Dan Cleary. People are upset like the last couple of years that Cleary played because he wasn't like performing like he used to. But the thing was, he was great to have in the locker room because he he was like the glue. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's sometimes what you got to you got to understand is just because what they the stat sheet doesn't always mean any everything. And if that means like if some of these guys that are they look like they're underperforming, but they're the ones who keep the team together. Like it looks like when you see the get to know your Red Wings for the season and they're all saying like if the apocalypse happens, who do you want? And everyone says Bernie. I'm like, OK. These guys want to like believe in Bernier, which is a good thing. Cause ironically um, during the outdoor game there, when Detroit was still a contender for the playoffs, um, all I can remember is, and my buddy Razmi, save by Bernier, save by Bernier, save by Bernier. <laughs> yeah. We were talking, like, okay, maybe we can get some save by Bernier's. And I mean, he's, you know, he's played pretty well. And same thing with Grice um, when he's had, he hasn't. And I mean, that's the other thing is we need to sign, still got to figure out defense, but hopefully, when Cider comes, you know, from Europe overseas, mm-hmm. that'll change some things because he's probably the best player that's not playing in the NHL right now. And the same thing goes with uh, Valeno's, you know, starting to improve. Like, yeah, um, I haven't, I'm haven't quite paid attention as much to the Griffins, so I'm waiting to see if uh, I'm not sure. I know Jared's on in the lineup. I just haven't seen him play yet. That's from Truro, and I haven't seen if he's playing or if he's in the East Coast because I know Gregor McLeod has been consistently staying in the a this year versus being sent down to the east coast right so mm-hmm. i and that's the thing about people as being as a red wings fan we're going through dead wings 2.0 but we also understand like how detroit works is we don't saw when we get a draft pick it's rare that we take them send them right to the nhl right away right. we make them play semi-pro for a year or two to adjust to the pros and that's a thing i think that's that's something a lot of these uh fan like uh keyboard warrior fans are like it's just a don't understand that it's a process it's not like you just jump in the nhl like even as zadina had to play pretty much a season in yeah. uh nhl and he's still doing well but again i mean today's game is different it's not like um it's not like you can just hop in. it's rare that someone steps on the ice at the nhl level and takes off like those are one it's not there are one out of it's one percent of hockey players realistically 
make the NHL. And out of that 1%, only 1% probably dominate the league right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's, I know. I agree with you. And I understand we want someone that can, we can draft right away and dominate the league, but that's not, that's not how Stevie works. And people got to remember, like he took Tampa Bay out of the basement and we're not in, we are in the basement, but we're not the deep dwellers of the basement. Fortunately, Buffalo is still uh, the worst team in the league. Yeah, they always will be. <laughs> well, I, it's hard to say because they were a good team. They had really strong teams. And I mean, yes, Hassett did help, but it's, it's the culture too. I think when you start put, if you don't have a winning culture, like at the front office, then it trickles down to the athletes. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think that was a great interview. I think that was, uh, we spoke for about an hour. Um, thanks so much for coming on to the, on the podcast. I really appreciate it. You are welcome. Cause it, I was thinking it was going to take about an hour cause I'm going to grab something to eat and then try out a new ro- our road that I saw and I'm supposed to rest today, but I'm just going to kind of go with the flow. Right. Um, just to not go, I'll probably go hard, but again, I want to find routes. So then when Monday rolls around, I know where to go. And I mean, I took my Monday was a day off and Tuesday was kind of an easy day. So I don't mind doing this a little extra mileage just to kind of, again, just to get the, um, know exactly when I do my workouts tomorrow, Saturday and Sunday, I know where to go and it's going to be productive. Right. Well, I wish you the best of luck and hopefully we see you in Tokyo sometime. Thank you, Billy. Great. Take care. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast this week. I hope you enjoyed listening to Ben talk a little bit about himself. If you have any tips, you can email me at billycole8 at outlook.com or maritimedeluxe at gmail.com. Or if you have any story ideas, feedback, whatever it may be. Uh, You can follow me on Instagram, billycole underscore, or the podcast Instagram, which is maritimedeluxe. And we'll see you next time.